And let's take a look at what God has to say about some very, very important issues. It's very... Do you know that the definition of mixed emotions? You know what mixed emotions are? That's when your mother-in-law drives over the cliff in your new Mercedes. I don't know how the father-in-laws got out of that one, but they did. (laughs) They escaped that one. Well, the Bible is mixed emotions. I, I, I do a balance of reading in my Bible reading. I read through... Two, two sections in the Old Testament, and then one. Then the New Testament is my third section. So I have reading through a major passage in the Old and Testament, first part, and then second part, and then I go to the New Testament. And everything just kind of balances itself off. And I, then I read the newspaper, and it doesn't seem to, <laughs> it doesn't seem to dovetail with what I've been reading in the Bible. Uh, it's just absolutely amazing, and and the news these days uh, is not good when it comes to the welfare of Christians, the gospel, and the church, and Christian colleges. These are pretty rough days, because it seems that the business world, and the media world, and the academic world, and half of the political world has decided to unite itself in a broadside against the churches on morality and marriage and sexuality and God and all of these things. And unashamedly, they have just been, been letting a broadside a barrage of whatever. Uh, and uh, you take a look at that, and then you took a, take a look at what's going on on the national scene, the nationwide scene. China, which, which of course is the greatest power in the world apart from the United States, is, is beginning to really clamp down more and more and more on the Christians there. The, the Communist Party there is very threatened because there are more Christians in China than there are communists now. And that's not so good. And in the midst of all of the clamp down, closing of churches, taking down of crosses, and, and prohibiting of educating children at all in the things of God, that just one thing is being added after another in China, and you see all of this going on, and, and you wonder, where is God in all of this? And then you pick up your Bible, and you read, you, you read in Psalm 2, why do the, why, why do the pagan nations, uh, why are they in an uproar against God and, and the things of God, and, and uh, why, why, do they, why are they on this campaign against God? And Then it says, he that sits in the heavens, help me with this, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Shall laugh. Isn't that amazing? We get frightened and we get terrified by what we see and God laughs. Why does he laugh? Because he's in charge. God makes even the wraths of men to praise him. We have an amazing God. He's in charge of our lives. He's in charge of our church. And he's in charge of the history of the world. An amazing, marvelous God. So while we look at the pervasive wickedness, the aggressive paganism around us, while we look at all of the strides they seem to be making, God is still enthroned on the vault of the earth. And he's God. And nobody else is. And I got, a, I got a little secret for you. We are his people. We're his children. 
were his sons, were his daughters. We're the apple of his eye, and he loves us. And he cares for us. And our future is not in the hands of politics. Our future is in the hands of an almighty God. That's wonderful. That is wonderful. And when I get tired, I pick up Isaiah 40 and I read it because God's not, when I'm tired, God's not tired. When I'm perplexed, God's not perplexed. When I've run out of gas, God is not out of gas. He's got everything I need. And those who wait with expectation on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up on wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary and they will walk and not faint. Wow, we are the people of God. And I want to continue this series of messages, and I'm taking this from a little different slant. You've noticed that, I think, than most preachers would. But I think that if you take any text out of context, you get in trouble anywhere in the study of God's Word. And we're going to take this text in its context, which is the whole book of Romans. It's not a text in itself, but it's a very important text, and we're going to ask God's Holy Spirit to very directly, very directly speak to our hearts personally. I'm asking God that a lot of personal issues will get resolved in this service today. Different kinds of personal issues. Totally different kinds of personal issues. This is indeed the Word of God. And I have given you an expanded translation or a paraphrase, whichever you want to call it. But I've dug into the Greek text as best I can to get the concepts, the concepts that are in those words in this text, so that we might profit from what is given us here. And perhaps the key to the whole thing, there are two, two the first and the last verses are probably the key to the whole text. You have those who place themselves under the power and influence of the gospel in the first verse. And then you have those that refuse to do so, and they are described in the last verse. So, and, and we've, got to, we've got to, as individuals, we've got to figure out how we relate to what, who God is and what he says to us. We've got to figure that out. So, Let's read through this expanded translation. I am not ashamed. Wow. All right. Is that your personal feeling? Is that your personal experience? Okay. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power resulting in a divine rescue from sin in the case of everyone who is believing, both to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile, because God's rightness, question, 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 is God right about everything he is and everything he does? Is God always right? And is he always totally and completely right? Okay. Verse 17, because God's rightness is revealed in this gospel, originating in faith, wow, producing additional faith, just like it has been written, but the righteous man shall live on the basis of faith. 
because the outrage of God is opened up to full view from heaven upon all irreverence, disrespect, profaneness, and unrighteousness of men who suppress, that is, they push down the truth in acts of unrighteousness. Because that which is well known about God is made clear and plain within themselves. Because God has personally made it known in detail to them. Because from the time of the creation of the cosmos, God's not seen attributes, both his eternal power and his standing as God, are both being intellectually grasped. Wow. And clearly seen through that which he has made. That would be the creation. The result, they are without excuse. That is, they are indefensible. Because even though they knew God, they did not honor him as the God he is. Nor did they feel any obligation toward him at all. In contradistinction to this, they rather were given over to the futility and worthlessness in their own what? Intellectual reasoning. Boy, isn't that the day we're living in. And their clueless heart was cast under a pall of darkness. Boasting, bragging themselves to be wise. They became fools. They became morons. They rejected the glory of the immortal God and chose rather for themselves an image in the form of the icon of mortal, corruptible man and of births and four-footed animals and reptiles. For this reason, God delivered them over, immersed as they were in the sinful passions of their hearts. God delivered them over into the power of moral corruption with the result that they degraded and abused their physical bodies among themselves and their peers. These people rejected the truth of God and chose rather for themselves the lie or deception, and both treated as sacred and served as sacred that which was created rather than the Creator who made it all, who is blessed forever. Amen. Specifically, for this reason, God delivered them over to the power of degrading passions. For those of them who were of female gender rejected the natural created sexual function and chose rather for themselves that which is contrary to the natural created function and therefore unnatural. And in the same way, the males abandoned the natural, naturally created sexual function of the female and were inflamed in their lustful passion, directed into one another, male in male, performing deformed, shameful, indecent acts, and in their own persons, receiving back to themselves, in return, the morally necessary and inevitable penalty of their moral straying. And just in the same way as they made, now notice here, a calculated decision, What's a calculated decision? What is it? They made a calculated decision not to be having God as an integral part of their body of knowledge and thinking. Boy, this sounds like the media I've been listening to all week. This sounds like academia. 
Sounds like the business world. I was, I was listening to conservative news and I couldn't find God anywhere in that. I said, where is God on Fox News? He wasn't anywhere to be found. The reason for everything was outside of God. Apart from God. How are we going to get anywhere under those conditions, dear people? Nothing that is mine is God is worth anything. They made a calculated decision not to behave in having God as an integral part of their body of knowledge and thinking. Notice an integral part that is mixed in properly with everything, properly related to everything else in their knowledge. God is to be connected to everything in its proper way. Did I read that right? Verse 28, let's go back. Just in the same way as they made a calculated decision not to be having God as an integral part of their body of knowledge and thinking, God delivered them over into the power of a depraved, that is a morally corrupted mind question. What does a morally corrupted mind produce? Righteousness or moral corruption? And how do we as believers expect people with morally corrupted minds to take a Bible and start promoting righteousness? How do we expect that in the culture in which we live? If there's no gospel, there's no goodness. God delivered them over into the power of a depraved, a morally corrupted mind to be doing those things that ought not to be done, being filled up full. Boy, this is modern society. With all unrighteousness, aggressive wickedness, greed, evil, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, contemptuous, haughty, boasters, strategists of evil. They do not, not only do evil, they strategize in evil. Not trusting their parents. Void of understanding. They're vacuous. Not to be trusted. Heartless without compassion, although they know full well they have a complete and accurate knowledge of the standard of God's rightness, which clearly states that those who practice such things are worthy of death. Not only are they doing these same things, but beyond this, they are giving hearty approval to, that is, they are applauding those who practice these things in their lives. Now, we said there are three issues very clearly addressed, and I have just taken the, the, the content out of here basically for the outline. The first issue is, who is this God? Who's God? I want to ask you, to, who's God to you? Is he irrelevant? Or do you know him personally as your creator? And we've gone through this. It's, it's such, such a precious, powerful thought to me that before the world's ever existed, before there was any stars or planets, before the world ever existed, God knew me by name. He's my creator. I originated in the heart and mind of God, period. Do you know God in that sense of the word? And then secondly, he personally, in the person, Jesus Christ is the agent of creation in the Trinity, and he's the agent of, agent of, agent of redemption. My creator is my redeemer. He died for me. He knows me by name. He brought me into existence through my parents. I am, exist by a direct created act of God. And then he redeems me by his own precious blood. My creator is my redeemer. 
May I ask you a question? If he's your creator and he's your redeemer, who really has the, who has first dibs on your life? Who? So God is uniquely uncreated, nothing else is such. Everything else is the product of his created activity. Then we come to the second issue, which is creation, because if God created everything, it's created with specific design and purpose. Your physical body was not created as a result of some kind of process of, 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 of evolution, time and chance, and, 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 and out came this thing you call your physical body. You get into science and you study your anatomy and your body and your physiology. You study that carefully, if you will, please, and you will find out there's absolutely, your body is a miracle from top to bottom, scientifically. Study the cell structure and you'll find in those cells, you will find, you will find mechanical equipment in your cellular and protein structure. There are actual gears that work within your cellular structure. Now, Mr. Darwin, you've got to explain that. You never have and you never will. And that means your body was created with function and purpose and, and the one who designed it and made it is the one who can tell you how it works the best and what to do with it and what not to do with it. And that the one conditions to do what with it. He created you and then because of sin that got messed up and then he redeemed you so that you could come back into his creative purpose and you could live under his creative purpose which is the most successful way you can live, period. So there's creation in the created order. What has God done? Why has he done it? Notice again the highlight, top page two. Everything without exception in all of creation originated in the heart and mind of God and was brought into existence by the word of God. I love that. Divine purpose and divine design are the foundation of all existence, period. Number three, the issue of man's response to God and his created order, and that's where we are today, and I need to move along. How do we respond? Paul said in Colossians, beware, see to it, watch out. Danger! Beware of the dog! It's a Rhodesian Ridgeback. It weighs 250 pounds, and it doesn't like you. Beware lest anyone take you captive, make a spoil of you through philosophy. This is this high-sounding intellectual reasoning that we, just, that we just read about. A calculated decision not to have God central in their knowledge. Beware of the philosophy. Beware of empty deception. The tradition of men, the elementary principles of the world, that's the culture, cultural norms that seem to make you look like a stupid fool. But if you're a stupid fool for a living according to the Bible, the God that created you is a stupid fool. And if you want to know who a stupid fool is, it's the one that doesn't understand who God is and how you relate to him as his creature and as his son and daughter. They're the stupid ones. Beware. So let's take a look. I have some notes now on the power of unbelief in sin and of the power of God. If you look back on that first page, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's God's power. So you have God's power. 
And then you have the power of sin. You have three times in that text. It's underlined in the blue font. God delivered them over. God delivered them over. God delivered them over to what? The power of moral corruption. The power of degrading passions. The power of a depraved mind. Sin is powerful. Give yourself to a little bit of it and it'll grab your whole life. May I repeat that? Give yourself to a little bit of sin and it'll grab your whole life. It has power. It is powerful. It will corrupt your mind. It will corrupt your body. It'll corrupt everything about you if you let it. If you give yourself over to it. You give yourself over to the gospel of Jesus Christ and it has enormous power. It won't overwhelm you by force. You see the difference between between being a slave to Christ and a slave to the devil It's totally different. Slavery to Christ is totally voluntary. Jesus Christ never forces his way on any man's life. My slavery to him is voluntary. I got up this morning and gave my life to him, not because he said, you've got to do this, because because he is such a great savior. I said, look, my life is yours. But slavery to the wicked one, he, he captures you and he won't let you go and he insists and he makes you do things. He puts you in bondage and chains and you become a slave to that which looked like it was going to give you great joy and happiness. Just like poor Eve in the garden. She was on her way to deity. You'll be like God. And she ended up, her first son was a murderer. Wow, she became like God, didn't she? She got independent of God. That's a wonderful life, the devil told her. God's lying to you. No, God didn't lie. The devil lied. She was brought under the power of that lie. So we're going to look at the power of unbelief and sin, and we're going to look at the power of God because it is a great power. I've got news for you as a believer today, or as an unbeliever. The work of the cross of Jesus Christ has great power to set you free. Great power to set you free. Now notice the power of wrong decisions. A frightful prospect. Because we have this phrase three times. God delivered them over. They made a choice. Now listen. God did not do that until they made a choice. They chose not to honor God as God. They chose not to have God as an an integral part of their thinking. They chose, they chose, they chose. They made choices. Listen, you are going to live with your choices. Deliver them over, which means, look in the notes, to hand over, to give over, to deliver over to someone or something, placing them under their or its power, use, and control. God delivered them over, verse 24, immersed as they were in the sinful passions of their heart. Well, how did this happen? Boasting themselves to be wise. (laughs) You stupid. (laughs) Why don't you get smart? Why don't you wake up? You've heard that before. Boasting themselves to be wise, they became morons. Why? Because the outcome was exactly opposite of what was promised or what they thought would take place. You are fools to believe the devil's lies. God said, you surely will not die. And before the sun set, they spiritually were dead. Their offspring were born in spiritual death. Spiritual death begets spiritual death. Spiritual life begets spiritual life. And if you expect spiritual life out of spiritual death, you're a moron. You don't plant tomatoes and get sugar beets. You don't plant carrots and get sweet peas. 
You plant carrots and you get carrots. You plant sin and you get sin and moral corruption. God delivered them over, immersed as they were. They rejected the glory of the immortal God and chose an image in the form of corruptible man. They worshipped what was created. They said, I'm running the clock out. Let me explain this to you. If you get saved, genuinely converted, and you start reading the Bible, now this is what's happened to some of us here that are they're here today. This has happened to us. Okay? And this is, I'm gonna tell you how it works, all right? So you're you're a sinner, you're, you don't know the Lord, and you get saved. So you read the Bible. And what does the Bible tell you, okay? The Bible tells you you're supposed to work hard. You're not supposed, if you don't work, you're not supposed to eat. You're supposed to labor hard. The Bible says you're supposed to be a good steward of everything you have. You don't throw it away. You don't waste it. You, 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 you give proper value to what God gives you as, as, as the result of your work and your labor. The fruit of your labor is valuable. And you've got to treat it that way. You don't throw it away. You don't, you don't waste it on stupid things. You're a good steward, a good manager of what God gives you, okay? And you're supposed to be a person of integrity and honesty. You don't steal. You only, you only use what is rightfully yours and what you work for. You don't touch what belongs to other people, but you take everything God gives you. And you maximize both your life and the treasure of the fruits of your labor, whatever that may be. You're awake. What happens to you if you do that? What happens to you if you do that? Help me. I haven't figured this out yet. I've got to think this through. <laughs> what happens? To one extent or another, you're going to accumulate what? Give me the W word. Wealth. Okay. So you begin to accumulate wealth and say, wow, this is wonderful. God said to do that. Look what I got. And, and uh, I, wow, I love filet mignons. But they've got to be prime and they've got to be cooked right. But poor people don't eat filet mignons. And what happens is you begin, listen to me, you begin to love the wealth, and the fruit of your labor, and you forget the one who gave all of it to you. God is the one that gives us the ability to get wealth. We have no ability to get wealth that we don't get from God. So we begin then to become enamored with the things that God has given us rather than the one who has given us these things. That's why your tithes and your offerings are so important. They are an official recognition that what you have came from God. All of it. Not some of it. All of it. Now God has given us all things richly to enjoy, not to worship. There's a difference. There's a difference. Okay? If God didn't want you to enjoy them, why does he give them to you? Come on. But he didn't give them to you to worship. Nor to depend on them because all of our well-being depends on God and not on our wealth. Okay? So, so God delivered them over because they 
did. They, they took that which was created and, and made a god out of it. That's what's happened in the USA. It's called the American dream. And instead of seeking God, we seek for the American dream. Well, you'll never have the American dream with freedom unless you have the American dream with God and God first. Then you'll have freedom with it. But without God, there would be no freedom left in this stuff. See? What won't happen? All right, verse 28. The power of a depraved, corrupted mind. They made a calculated decision not to be having God as an integral part of their body of knowledge and thinking. We've got to move quickly along. Now, let's look at the dynamic of this power. Page number three in Second Corinthians chapter four. Take the second paragraph there. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of whom? The unbelieving. Making this choice to exclude God puts you in a place where the wicked one can just pull the shades over you in every area of your life to where you can't see spiritually. He has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. He has blinded the minds and the word minds there, it doesn't mean brains. It's the Greek word noema which means thinking, understanding, the reasoning power of the mind. The reasoning powers of the mind. You can have an IQ of 1,500 and be spiritually a moron. Because it doesn't matter what your intelligence level is, what your IQ level is, what your grade average is, it does not matter. If you exclude God from your thinking, it just decapitates the, the spiritual part of your brain, period. Your, your ability to think is just cut off. That's why it is dangerous for a Christian to play around with sin. Your whole reasoning process changes and you don't even know it. I'll get a little personal with this. I'm 81 years old and one of the terrors that I have, if I have any fear or terror, it's that my mind will begin slipping. At my age, that happens. And what happens when your mind begins slipping? You don't know your mind is slipping because your mind is slipping. You, 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 read, you, you, you meet an older person whose mind is halfway gone. They don't know it's gone because they don't have enough presence of mind to know they don't have presence of mind. And this happens to you spiritually as a Christian. It happens to you and you don't have enough sense to know the darkness in which you live. This is amazing how this process works. John 3.19, this is the condemnation. This is the judgment. The reason God condemns sinners is not because they're sinners. It it doesn't matter how bad a sinner you are. That will not send you to hell. The thing that will send you to hell is if you love the darkness rather than the light. It's a moral choice that sends you to hell, not how horrible the condition your life is in. I got news for you. It doesn't matter how bad the condition of your life today, God by his grace can transform it and you can go to heaven justified, totally acquitted to stand in the presence of God forever for eternity as his son or his daughter. That's good news. That's good news. That can happen. 
That can happen. But John says the judgment is this. Light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. That is a moral choice you make. Whether you make it as an unbeliever or as a believer, you make that choice and that choice has total consequence. It will totally govern your life. It will totally govern the outcome of everything in your life. And the process of this power, Ephesians 4.27, neither give place to the devil. I think we have a couple people in this, this, this room that know about real estate. Pieces of property. Pieces of property. And what he's saying here is, he's saying here is, your life is like a piece of property. Let's say your life is like a 10-acre piece of property. You might not know what 10 acres is, but let's, let's, just, <laughs> let's just think you do. I don't know if this property of the church is an acre or not. Might be part of an acre. But supposing the devil comes along and he says, I want a part of this property. And you say, well, you, you can't have the auditorium, but we'll give you the chapel. And it's not long, he's saying, I want the classrooms too. Then he wants the offices. And then we're sitting here with the auditorium and everything else is gone. And he lights fire to that and he says, I want the auditorium too. Now, what he's saying here is, Don't give any part of your life over to satanic lies. Don't let Satan and sin dominate any part of your life, whether it's your body, your soul, your spirit, your heart, your mind. Do not give a piece of your life to to the devil. Don't give him any, don't give him ground in your life. Now look, a demon cannot possess a believer. That's not possible. You cannot be demon-possessed, but I will promise you this. Demons will possess every part of your life that you give over to their governance. They will possess your mind. If you give your mind to pornography, I will promise you there will be a whole area of your life that will come under demonic dominance. If, if, you, if you cease to be truthful and you start giving up the truth in your life, there's a whole area of your life that's going to go under demonic dominance. If there's moral compromise, that moral area of your whole moral area of your life will come under demonic dominance because you gave it to them, not because they had a right to take it. They don't have a right to take it from a believer. Now, they will take it by deception. And then you find it out, and then you have to fight to get it back. Don't give place to the devil. Don't give the devil an opportunity, period. The ultimate result, what happens to this? Well, in Genesis 6, when the flood came, everything was given totally over to wickedness. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Sounds like, sounds like America today. Behold, I, even I, am bringing a flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh which is in the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. God says there's only cure, one cure from this thing, and that, that's, to, that's to destroy it. I want you to notice quickly, if you will, the tragic saga of, of Pharaoh. This is a, this is a uh, frightening study. How in the world... Did Israel get out of Egypt? Well, there's this fellow by the name of Pharaoh that stood in the way. Pharaoh thought he was God. 
He didn't know that God was God and he wasn't. And so Pharaoh, Pharaoh started dealing with God. God sent his prophet Moses to Pharaoh. And uh, what was the first thing? What was the first thing that, that Moses did? Come on, it, it, it's test time now. How's your recollection of this whole thing? What's the first thing that Moses did standing in Pharaoh's presence? Who's God? He threw his rod down, it became a snake. And then the next thing he did was he turned the water to blood. Now, Moses said, I want you to understand that you are not God, that God is God, and all your gods are false gods. And I'm serving the God that made the heavens and the earth, and he wants his people to go. Let my son go out of Egypt. Israel's my son. Let him go. Let my people go. Now, how is it that this thing it not only resulted in the coming out of the nation of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but it resulted, it resulted in the almost the total destruction of a world power in that day. One of the most powerful rulers in all the world and his kingdom were utterly destroyed because the leader of that kingdom decided that he was not going to listen to God. Now, here's how it went. You'll notice, and I don't know how many I've got here. You can count the number of texts here. But in, in, in chapter 7, we're going to follow the miracles through here. Now, God is trying to get through to his heart. Some of you today, there, there is something going on in your life God's dealing with you about. Are you listening to me? You may have an issue with God in your life today. I don't know what it might be. It might be in telling the truth. It might be in, 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 in the business of um, morals. It might be in the, the area of, of anger. It might be in the area of fear and terror ruling your life in a certain area of your life. I don't know what it is. And God has been dealing with you for a long time. Be careful how you respond to God is what I'm telling you. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So you'll notice that I have two different fonts under the tragic saga of Pharaoh. Notice there's blue. And then notice there's red. And it goes on to the fourth page. Okay, you notice that? Now every time you see the blue font, Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. Okay? Every time you see the blue font, Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. Every time you see the red font, God is responding to Pharaoh's choice, and then God begins to harden Pharaoh's heart. That's where it becomes frightening. Okay? That's when it becomes frightening. So in 712, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. In 22, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And after another miracle, he hardened his heart. After another miracle, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Pharaoh's heart hardened his heart this time also. The heart of Pharaoh was hardened. And then in chapter 9, verse 12, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. I'm telling you people, if God is dealing with you about things in your life, in a, on a serious level now, this is not a trivial level, but if God is dealing with you with issues in your life on a serious level, you need to be careful what you do with the work of the Holy Spirit of God in your life. Chapter 9, 
He hardens his heart, Pharaoh again. Chapter 10, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Chapter 11, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Chapter 14, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, as they were going out of the land. And his whole army, as a result, was wiped out in the Red Sea. Absolutely amazing. And when you come to Hebrews chapter 3, I'm sorry, the book of Hebrews, three times you have the admonition, harden not your heart. Harden not your heart. And he's writing to believers. And he talks in verse 18, to whom did he swear that they would not enter into his rest but those who were disobedient? And that's word, that word disobedient means not to be persuaded. Not to be persuaded. How many times do you parents say, I wish my children would listen to me? How many times have your parents, as an adult, said to you, I wish my children would listen to me? And God will look at this congregation today and he would say, I wish my people would listen to me. Disobedient, they would not be persuaded. Now the power of the gospel. This is fantastic. Absolutely unbelievable. And I'll need to dovetail on this next week. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is God's power. Do you know how you can get out of the mess you're in? It's God's power. It's the power of the work of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's how you, that's how you overcome. That's where the victory was won. Jesus Christ made a spoil of principalities and powers and an open public show of triumph over them in the work of the cross. And there is victory in Jesus. There is victory. I'm not ashamed. Notice Colossians 1.13. Fantastic verse. He rescued us. This means that he came down into a situation and brought us up out out of a situation that was threatening our life and existence. He rescued us out of the power, the domain, literally the authority of darkness. And he met us, strepho. He transferred us. He lifted us out and removed us over into the kingdom, the rulership, the dominance, the power of his beloved son. That's an amazing verse. I don't know what you're saying. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? What is, what, is, what is your situation? How great is the power of sin in your life? Oh, absolutely amazing. I was just reviewing in, as I was praying this morning that marvelous passage in Ephesians that, that, that God might open our hearts and our minds that we might understand, might understand the hope of his calling and the riches of the glory, his glorious riches in his inheritance in the saints, and that we might understand the surpassing greatness of his power into us, which he worked in Jesus Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rulers and authorities and powers and dominions. What is the power of the gospel? Far greater than the power of sin. 
far greater than the power of wickedness and demonic powers. Far, far greater. And if any man is in Christ, that's the next verse, he is a new creature. The word creature literally is that word created being. That's why it says creature, but the idea is on the being created. There is a creative power of God that reaches down and transforms the life from the inside out. So it doesn't matter where you are in Romans chapter 1 if you are willing to exercise your heart and mind and and choose to let God move in and change your life. (laughs) There is great hope for you. And as a believer there is too. There is too. It is amazing. Absolutely amazing. He is a newly created being. That's what that means. Wow. The power of the creator moves in to restore and to change and empower and enable us to do what we ought to do. And I do need to clean this up. 1 Corinthians 1. Look at it for just a moment. Are, are, are you awake yet? Is it okay? Are your, your stomach's rumbling? Um. Let, let's, let's clean this up. Paul called an apostle by the will of God. This is 1 Corinthians. This is, that, this is that church in the middle of that pagan culture with all of these, with all of these problems of, of, of the flesh and the influence of paganism. By the will of God, Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God at Corinth, those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. And notice what he calls them, saints. I want to tell you, when these people got saved, they were in sad shape. You, you cannot read this, this epistle without knowing that the lives of these people were in sad shape spiritually. They knew nothing. They knew nothing of a biblical culture. They knew nothing of biblical family structure. They knew nothing of the structure of a New Testament church. They knew nothing of biblical morality. Nothing. I mean, they were totally spiritually and morally out in the woods. And he's calling them saints. This happened because of the power of the gospel. You'll go, let's read on quickly in five, verse 5. In everything you were enriched, their lives had been enriched. They have a testimony concerning Christ, verse 6, confirmed in their lives. They are going to be confirmed in the end, verse 8, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. These tragically lost pagans are going to stand before a holy God blameless in the day of Christ. That's the hope of the gospel. That's why we need a church in San Francisco. That's why we need the gospel here. Because that's what God does with these hopeless, lost sinners. That's what he does with them. Verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship and they were living in a living partnership with Jesus Christ. They'd come out of the horrible background and they were living lives in partnership with Jesus Christ. And who were these people in this church? Chapter 6, verse 9, the unrighteous, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. This, what a description for your congregation. He says, this is what you were. Some of you, were. this was your life. 
What is the power of the gospel? It's to teach these kinds of people, make saints into them, and, and stand them before God blameless in the day of Jesus Christ. That's the power of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of a gospel that'll do this. <laughs> Paul gave his life to this gospel. Such were some of you. What's their state now? Washed, sanctified, justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of God. Wow! Wow, I'm not ashamed of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is God's power resulting in a divine rescue. Colossians, he's reached down into a hopeless situation. He's lifted us up in divine rescue, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Wow, sons and and daughters of God Almighty, do you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior? Ooh, ooh, listen, according to this, God's not impressed with what your background is. God is not impressed with what your problems are. God is impressed with the fact that through an infinite, eternal sacrifice for your sins on the cross, you can have a standing before God. You can become a saint in Jesus Christ. And you can become a newly created being. Divine creative power is brought to bear on your life to completely transform it. It's called regeneration. That's our gospel. That's our message. Now before we close, I do have one more issue. Is God working in your life? Is there a major issue in your life between you and God? I don't know what it might be. It could be in any area of life. Every one of us is different. But I want to say this. Settle every issue you have on God's terms. That's called repentance. I don't know what the issue may be. I don't know what's tearing up your life. If it's tearing your life up, there's something needs to be dealt with. Settle every issue of your life on God's terms. Let him have his way. Dear evangelist, years ago, Harry McCormick Lynch, in his invitation, he would always say this, and he'd say it so kindly. He would say, now look, you've tried your way. Now why don't you try it God's way? Why don't you try it God's way? I want us to bow our heads and close our eyes. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Listen, listen, listen today. Are you sure? If you do not know him right where you are, cry out to God, Lord Jesus, save me today. You died for my sins. You're my creator. You're my redeemer. I receive you as my savior and Lord today. Save me today, Lord Jesus, from my sin. And if you do that, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what the promise is. You will become a new created being by creative, divine, divine creative power. Your life will be changed. Not by religion, but, but by Jesus Christ who will come into your life and create their new life in you. Receive him right now as your Savior. And if you're a believer, 
and there's a battle going on in your life, do not give place to the wicked one. Say, God, look. Look, God, you are right, and I'm wrong, and I can't straighten this mess out, but God, you can. You promised to do it. Now I'm going to give it over to you today. I want every issue in my life resolved on your terms, not mine. Every issue in life resolved on your terms and not mine. And I'll remind you of the dear godly Chinese pastor that was having a tremendous battle with God in an area of his life. And he cried out to God and he said, Now look, God, you and I have a disagreement over this thing, but God, please, you are not to give up on me till you win and I lose. Don't stop until you win. You've got to win this thing in my life. You might have to pray that prayer today. God, I can't win this thing, but you have got to keep Keep working in my life until you win the battle. Don't leave me alone. Just don't leave me alone. Stay with me until you win. Because ultimately, you know, when God wins, you win. God loses, you lose. That's the way it goes. That's the way it goes. Now do business with God right where you are. With any serious struggle you have with the Lord in your life. Don't Give that area over to the wicked one. Just don't let him have it. Don't let him have it. Say, now God, this part of my life is yours. The wicked one has it. I've got a real battle. I've given ground away on this thing. Satan is claiming that it belongs to him. It doesn't. I'm giving it over to you. Heavenly Father, by the Spirit of God, give great joy and blessing help, strength, and victory in our hearts today. Wonderfully saved, precious people. May may there be some genuine conversions today. I pray, God, that your people will, by the Spirit of God and the power of the work of the cross, they will prevail over all of the darkness in their life. They need to take back that ground they've given up. And say, no, 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 look, the the devil can't have it any longer. I pray God you'll just bless and help and strengthen mightily by the work of your Holy Spirit as we wait upon you in these quiet moments. Change and transform our lives into the image of the Lord Jesus. Anoint us with fresh oil, fresh filling of the Holy Spirit of God. Change our lives. We're living in a dark day. Help us, Lord, to shine more brightly as lights in a dark place. Give us, O God, tremendous confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that can change our culture, that can change our nation, that can change our society. It's the only thing that is divinely powerful to the destruction of of fortresses. God, I pray, touch us new and fresh by your Holy Spirit. May this be a day of tremendous joy and victory and blessing as we fellowship around the tables, as we go our way. May our lives be totally, but totally given over to you. May we worship the Creator, not the things, not the blessings of the Creator, but may we worship the Creator. And then, dear Lord, may we enjoy your blessing supremely. Oh, God, smile upon your people now, we pray. In Jesus' wonderful, wonderful name. Amen.